Thank you very much. And, uh, and welcome. Welcome to the Soho Theatre on Sunday, the 22nd of September 2013, for No Pressure to Be Funny. Presented by me, James O'Brien, created by Alistair Barry and Nick Revel, and podcasting on the British Comedy Guide. As usual, we'll be taking a wry look at the carefree ways in which the human race is happily heading towards its self-destruction. Although there is, dare I say it, some cause for possible optimism this week. Iran's new leadership is offering olive branches to the USA. The Pope appears to be expressing charitable Christian attitudes. And Godfrey Bloom, the Basil Fawlty of British politics, continues to put a smile on everyone's face. Except Nigel Farage's. Damien McBride, former press secretary to Gordon Brown, has admitted that he behaved appallingly in a world of greed, duplicity and hypocrisy and that he couldn't live with himself, he confesses in a Daily Mail exclusive on the eve of the Labour conference. There's a lot to get through this week, so let's press straight on and to start, as ever, with some music. It's Sunday. The X Factor isn't on for another hour. So here, ladies and gentlemen, is a young man, a an undoubted star of the future who's filling time here with us before his audition. Please welcome back to No Pressure, Mr. Steve Gribbin. I would like to start off with a bit of a, a song dedicated to UKIP. Uh, of course, UKIP is short for UKIP, and when you wake up, everything's like it used to be. Bobby's on the street, no red post boxes, uh, Union Jack tattoos on the inside of your eyelids, sort of Gibraltar of the mind. So, who better to celebrate this hankering after the 1940s than uh, one of my uh, all-time heroes, and I'm sure he's one of yours, George Formby, uh, the uh, unsung sex god of the ukulele. This is a song called When I Am Ethnically Cleansing Windsor. <laughs> and it goes something like this. <laughs> I was leaning on an immigrant just the other day Contemplating sending every last one of them away Hey, by God, my mother, let's all just turn back the clock Till when there were no black or brown people living in a council block And life was so much simpler and the jobs were all for men And women knew their place to stay in the kitchen then They could clean behind the fridge and never play a game of bridge Cos Mr Wu has been deported now Been turned out his house again, hasn't he? <laughs> I hate the European Union, that's why I'm an MEP To show my contempt I draw my 83 grand salary We don't make get chummy with fascist nutters That's a nonsense The fact they're all called the Jew Killers Party It's just a pure coincidence Let's go back to flogging toddlers Those were the good old days When there was no such thing as gay marriage And there was no such thing as gays Britannia ruled the world and it were grand Especially in Bongo Bongo Land And Mr Wu has been deported now Our leader Nigel Feels your pain as tears run down your face As a commodity broker he started the, ch the crash in the first place He's an ordinary bloke, he'll have a pint with you, whoever you are Unless you're Polish and you happen to be working behind the bar Let's go back to paying for the doctor, let's abolish the NHS Cos Nigel's got private health insurance, he couldn't care less 
Go on, close our borders, no ifs or buts Or you're all a load of sluts Mr Woo's been deported now Get out of Europe Mr Woo's been deported now We'll trade with Mr Woo's been deported now Steve Griffin. Steve Griffin, ladies and gentlemen. Let's crack straight on and uh, allow me to introduce you to tonight's panel. Angela Barnes is a winner of the BBC New Comedian of the Year Award. Uh, she not only appeared on the last edition of No Pressure to be Funny, but she also answers her emails a lot quicker than most comedians. Uh, Dan Smith is Secretary General of the peace-building charity International Alert, and as such is slightly worried that the new president of Iran might be stealing his thunder. Former Daily Star journalist Rich Pepiat is hilarious, brave, and strangely arousing, according to Hugh Grant, which is quite a commendation from Hugh, although I'd be very wary if he offered you any money. Uh, Award-winning comedian, blogger, and podcaster extraordinaire Richard Herring is also known as Rich, but as we're in a theatre, we're just going to go for it and call him Richard II. Ladies and gentlemen, the panel. And uh, now to get the ball rolling, with the motion that the devil's advocate believes that the veil is the way forward. Here's Alistair Barry. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that warm welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Move to five o'clock. Do you not wake up till seven? Okay, ladies and gentlemen. The devil's advocate believes that the veil is the way forward. Chicks, right? What's the deal with that? I have a penis, so I can't handle them either. So I think the best idea is to cover them up so you can pretend they're not there. I don't know if you've ever got in trouble for ignoring your girlfriend in a social situation, but how much easier would it be if her clothing did the job for you? <laughs> Obviously, the term girlfriend becomes obsolete too, because we all know how hard it, is can, it can be to chat up women. Am I right, guys? Or am I right? How much easier if they're just awarded to you? <laughs> And I want my doctor to wear a veil. That way, I can't tell if they're going to give me bad news. <laughs> Obviously, this issue has only arisen recently because, according to a lot of people, women don't need to be educated and therefore rarely get to any schools, let alone medical ones, so they often don't become doctors. If you're not allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia, what's the chances of being allowed to operate? Come on, girls, wear the veil and save yourself from all that tedious reading. <laughs> You probably won't understand it anyway. Are you with me, ladies? No more complaining about bad hair days or not having time to do your face. Just take your face out of the equation. <laughs> the other beauty of this beauty tip is you can get served in Selfridges at any time. <laughs> and hey, why should the veil be confined to women? If he had worn a veil, I'm sure EDL leader Tommy Robinson would have had no problem purchasing goods in Oxford Street's leading department store, although he might have had a little more difficult eating his free meal. But Tommy doesn't believe in the veil because he's proud of who he is, which is Tommy Robinson, or as he's sometimes known, Andrew McMaster, or Paul Harris, or his actual given name, which is Stephen Yaxley Lennon, which he obviously dropped because it's very difficult to lead a street protest band of thugs with a name as unstreet as Stephen Yaxley Lennon. Interestingly, a large number of the EDL effectively wear the veil when they take to the street to protest against it. <laughs> if we banned the balaclava or the St George's cross neckerchief, we could truly call ourselves progressive. The veil is clearly the way forward, and it would make life a lot easier for the Selfridges Human Resources Department. Thank you very much indeed. Alistair Barry, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, well, it's... It, it... 
the gift that keeps on giving, I suppose. I've I just realised I'm the only radio phone-in host in the room. So for radio phone-in hosts, the veil is the gift that keeps on giving. For, for other people, presumably, it's, it's rather more problematical. I, I, I almost don't want to say ladies first, because that would almost be buying into the sort of medieval gender stereotyping that I imagine we're all set to lampoon. But, but Angela, I will allow you to have the first pop. And, and listening to Alistair, it occurred to me that... Like, that was very bold in a way. Until relatively recently, there still would have been a degree of reticence, even among the edgiest and most right-on of young comedians, to, to lay so heavily into something culturally defensible. It, it comes up every six months or so, doesn't it? The, somebody's been yes. banned from wearing the veil and somebody's... And, and I don't know... There's that internal conflict that goes on between the liberal lefty yes. and me, obviously, that, that believes in the freedom of religious tolerance and all of that, and then the feminist in me that... But so I don't know what the answer is, but I'm pretty sure that by banning the wearing of the... the now, let me get this. It's the niqab. The niqab is... I the, swear to God, yes. every time I get it, they change the name of it. I, <laughs> so one day they're going to be... It's not a niqab, it's a Scooby-Doo. It's a, um, but, but, you know, the, the fact is that if women are being oppressed and being forced to wear... Banning them from wearing them in public isn't going to help that situation, is it? You can't make somebody less oppressed by letting them not leave their house, essentially. No. That's Although the, the French, God, the French, God bless them, have tried precisely that well, yeah. that approach. So, in, in other words, you can't. You might hate it and everything it stands for, but yeah. to say you're not allowed to wear it ever. Well, yeah, and, and my concern is that, that women, if they are being oppressed within within those communities, to then ban them from places where they can receive an education and you know freedom because they're wearing the niqab, it, it just seems counter. Productive to me, just... Yes, in, in, in 1922 in America, uh, I, I can tell I've been on Twitter all day, there was, uh, <laughs> there was a, a, a woman who was taken to jail by a policeman who thought the slit in her skirt was too high. <laughs> and subsequently, after they got her to the police station, they didn't know what to do with her, so, so they took her to an insane asylum. And, and the newspaper described her as extraordinarily pretty. And, but, the, but the slit in the skirt was just that little bit too high for the policeman's sensibility. So we like to congratulate ourselves on being a world away from this sort of thing. I, I sometimes wonder whether we are. Dan, you, you work in worlds where oppression is, I mean, absolutely inarguable, where, where, where there's no question of it being, well, maybe it's a matter of free choice and maybe it isn't. Where, where do you sit on, on, on this on the streets of Britain? Um, whatever the problem is, the solution isn't to ban the veil. I think that I think this is something where law should stay out, to be honest. And therefore I think that probably parliamentarians would do well to stand to stand back a bit away from this issue and not to think about it as something on which we must take action. Mm, that is the dialogue. I mean, that's the narrative now. But we think, need to have a national debate about this. Well, I think it's good. Well, the problem with the debate is that you have a, a motion which you are for and then which you are against. So I think a, a debate is actually unhelpful, but a discussion or a dialogue or exchange of views which goes on, yes, I think that's absolutely necessary. And I think there are places where, honestly, from my point of view, a veil is, or that, that full veil, the niqab, is, is completely inappropriate. But there are others when, you know, out on the street, I mean, if that is how somebody feels more comfortable, um, I fail to see the difference between that and wearing a hat, honestly. I mean, if I don't wear a hat, but if you want to wear a hat, I'm not going to kind of object to that on the grounds that it, you know, it gets in the way of our conversation. I, 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 just, I just don't see where the strength of feeling from the majority community is coming. 
about Do you not? Is that racism, I think. Mm. Mainly, mainly racism. Richard? <laughs> yeah, that's a part. <laughs> well, but not, I don't, you know, on the question time, they'll be going, well, I don't, I don't want a doctor, if they're giving me, th- I don't want them to have yeah. a kneecap on. And you go, well, what if it was a doctor who burnt his face in an accident and was bandaged up? Would you, com- would you complain about that? Or what if it was a doctor on a phone? Would you yeah. complain about that? So it's just, it's just a way of going, oh, yes, I found a, I found a logical way that I can now be racist but against you, someone I don't like. You're sounding very young, I, I, if you don't mind me saying so. An older person might genuinely be freaked out by it, not, not for reasons of racism, but just for reasons of never having encountered it before, well, and they're more likely to be going to the doctors. Really? The doctors I mean, wear masks? So what? You've not encountered <laughs> so you know, they mustn't, mustn't frighten old people. No, but, but, but there's a relationship between recuperation and stress, and I don't think... Well, you think they might think it's a me, ghost or something? I was about, I, I was about <laughs> to say, I don't think it's pushing the point too far, but the, the look on your face is it is already pushing the point too far. To suggest that frightening someone or freaking them out or stressing them in, in that circumstance is just a little bit unnecessary. Who would be frightened of it? I mean, I think you'd only be frightened of it if you were racist, or you're thinking, I am racist, I can't tell what colour that person is, yeah. and I don't know how to respond to them. I might, I, I might be wasting smiles on them and things like that, and friendly greetings. What about in a dock, though, in a, in a dock in a court of law? I still don't see it. I mean, I think oh, come off somebody, it. well, somebody, I think it was um, Richard Wiseman uh, said that actually there's a lot to be said that you, you, it's easier to tell someone's lying from their voice than mm. from their facial expressions. Mm. So actually not being able to see people giving evidence might be a good thing rather than a bad thing. I don't necessarily, you know, I, I don't like it. I don't like the idea of, of dressing women up so you can't see them. If it's to stop men looking at women, yeah. surely it would be easier. You know the little slit they cut out for the eyes? If they just stuck that over all the men's eyes and the women could... <laughs> it, would save, it would save a lot of material. <laughs> and... Uh, the, the, there's an implicit suggestion. Dan, you say you don't know what, what, what people get upset about. R- Richard Pepiat, the, the, there is a sort of, maybe it's just me, but there is a sort of implicit suggestion that all women not wearing it must be, this is a UKIP moment now, but I use the word <laughs> in, uh, deliberately, all women who don't wear it therefore must be slacks. That, that, that might be what is go- that must be what's going on well, in the mind of its supporters. I, I, I filmed a thing last year mm. for, the, for the BBC about um, people, about women who were converting to Islam because they, they married uh, a Muslim man, or reverting, as they, they call it, reverting. Um, and uh, actually a lot of them said that they found it very liberating. Mm. The, the fact that they didn't have to worry all the time about going out and, and the pressures of looking a certain way. Um, they, they said that they don't find it oppressive at all, and it's very much their choice, which is interesting because I, I kind of came from the, well, do you really want to wear that? Are you being... But it, they said they didn't. Um, now... I suppose I'm coming from a position probably the only uh, man in this room who's actually no, worn a burqa um, <laughs> oh, in <you> are. public. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's fair to say, and I'm sitting again, I'm going to have to mention this, because I, I did go out for the day uh, when I was working at the Daily Star dressed in a burqa um, to try and test what it was like uh, to wear a burqa. Um, not my idea, I'd like to add. Uh, not my idea by any means. Um, and, and first of all, it's very, very cool underneath. Very, very, really nice. It was a really, really? hot day, and it's really nice and cool on, in, in a burqa. Can I ask um, what, what, what you had on beneath the burqa? Surely this just, is relevant. Just, just my cool. pants. Oh, and this, this was the mistake that I made, because there are no pockets on a burqa. <laughs> and uh, I, I duct taped to my chest uh, an iPhone and 10 Marlboro lights, um, and didn't think much about it until members of the public were so concerned by the sight of what was obviously a bloke walking around the streets in a burqa they called the police. And... Uh, 
uh, I was uh, stripped to my underpants um, <laughs> just off Oxford Street. Um, and obviously the duct taped thing to my uh, chest didn't exactly clean things up. And, and it did lead to, to some... And the, and the complete lack of a press card didn't help my situation. And it was basically a complete disaster. And... Uh, that's certainly one of the things that I think on my deathbed I'll look back at. What are you most ashamed of that you've done? And I, I know it's going to be there in, in the you, top three. Did uh, you get a page lead for it? Did you, yeah. um, a double page spread. Well actually. done, mate. Yeah, That's all go, worth there it. You go. Can I just, just take you back to how that was pitched to you? How someone sidled up to you? It, it yeah, was the, the, editor, the editor, Dawn, she came up because it was the day that the, um, the French had banned. Um, the burqa. It was, it was on that day and they said, we want you to go out and, and to say, what is it like underneath the burqa? And I, and I wrote my copy for this piece and it was very down the line, going, actually, it was quite nice and people treated me very well and you know, people held the door and I just felt like I was treated like anyone else would be treated. There was no sense of any weirdness. Ignoring the part with the, 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 the armed police, they decided not to put that in the, uh, in the article. Oh. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and they changed it. They changed the copy entirely and uh, made it say um, that I believe that we should ban the burqa and it's oppressive and blah, 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 and uh, put my name on it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was, I was not happy, shall we say. Um, I, I, I once had to walk up King's Road in a pair of stiletto heels, so I feel your pain. That was for a feature in the Daily Express. But unfortunately, <laughs> I then developed a lifelong um, fondness for what walking around feature? in stiletto heels. Uh, Dan, someone in the tabloids just likes getting men dressed up as women. <laughs> Let's, can we get them dressed up as women? In we the get? same building as well, about five <laughs> years apart. But you do anything, don't you, to get a Bible? I mean, clearly you did, I did. I got to get a tattoo. A I got a tattoo for a job. On my back, live... I got it done on the South Bank to open a Dali exhibition just because I got a phone call one day saying, can you do it? And the paper said, you know, do you, will you go and do this? And I went, yeah, go on then. And got a tattoo. I didn't even have any tattoos at the time. No. It was, uh, yeah. What Any careers it? officers in the audience? This would probably, <laughs> probably be a moot point to take a few notes for things you might want to say to your charges at some... Dan, do we have a clear view of, of, of where it came from, the veil? Because there's no real Quranic justification for it, but lots of, as with any religious discussion, mm. lots of people argue that there is and there isn't. But is there a sort of... I mean, it's no, I I, there's no Quranic uh, justification. There's, um, it's very clear that everybody, not just women, should dress modestly. Mm. Um... And you can, if you sort of trace veil and headscarf and track their geography across North Africa, uh, through the, the Middle East, going further east, Afghanistan, Pakistan, onto Indonesia, you find so many different practices. I mean, from uh, a headscarf which is sort of allowed to hang loose and may, women may sometimes hold it with their teeth in order to keep it on if there's a bit of a breeze or something. But otherwise, it's just a headscarf. To places where actually... They, they don't in particular at all, then what you realize is that this is actually much more to do with local custom than it is to do with a local tradition, than it is to do with something which is clearly and specifically sort of religiously or doctrinally mandated. And I think also that's one thing that people, in, in a sense, when having this discussion, need to bear in mind, is that if you, if you were to say, I actually find it offensive that somebody is wearing the niqab, you are not actually taking a position against Islam or something that Islam tells people to do. You're taking a position against something that some Islamic women do do. And that seems to me to be, to be quite, quite different. Um, so yes, there's a huge amount of diversity and I've no, I have no idea what sort of system, if any, lies behind those choices. The, the, the received wisdom, Angela, is that it, it is to stop 
a person's face inciting uncontrollable sexual urges. Well, men are weak. In so, the you know. we, we are weak. <laughs> and I, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a particular paucity of sexual violence and, and nastiness in countries where the niqab is, is popular. But mm. the, the, I mean, that, this is where, when Dan said he doesn't understand what people find offensive about it in, in, in some ways. I find that offensive. The suggestion as, as the father of two little girls that I can't control myself when a beautiful woman hoves into view and I'm going mm. to... Um, behave disgracefully is incredibly obnoxious, even if it's an implicit suggestion. It is, but we're in a culture of, of victim blaming in many areas, and, and, and that, you know, rather than educating, and this isn't just to do with the, the niqab and within Islamic societies, it's rather than educating our young men on. Well, on, exactly, you know, yes, don't, we, don't, don't the be a onus dirty is on the bastard. woman to, you know. British values, take, you see. Yeah. This is the way. On the day, the day that the court case was, was announced, when the judge... I, I mean, I thought it was a br brilliantly British compromise. He said, well, look, you can, you can wear it a bit. <laughs> this is... This, uh, maybe you want to stand up and salute. Was a, God bless you, sir. That's what, you can wear it a bit, but sometimes don't. I've just, died, I, I've just died reading the Quran. actually. I have a copy of the Quran, a really nice gold-leaf copy that, that an um, imam gave me at a mosque. And um, he gave it to, he'd like to give it to me as a gift. And I was really touched that I got given this Quran. And, and it was about a year ago, and it sat there, and I've been meaning to read it. But he said this weirdest thing to me as he gave it to me. He said, uh, this is for you. Please don't read it on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was like, do I look like, you know, am I, do I look like a guy who reads religious texts on the toilet? I, 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 you just, do you say that to everyone, or do you just look at me and just go, <laughs> I bet he means to read this on the bulk. I'm like, no, I've got plenty of, it does, you know. How long do you think I spend in the toilet, sir? I'm going to get through the whole Quran. The Sun, on, on Wednesday, I think it was, The Sun. I, I picked up a copy on a train. I didn't buy it. It's right. <laughs> I, um, but The Sun's headline said, it, the, the actual line was, The Sun Demands. Yes, like, which, that's it. Uh, that yes. just always made yeah. it, The Sun Demands, which, when are they, they're just a tramp shouting in the street. Are they nobody? No. <laughs> No policy's being made because the sun's demanded it. That's, but when the policy is made, the sun will go, we demanded that. That's, that's how that happened. But the, the sun demands, and, and the fact that they, they demand, that, um, they demand um, that the veil should, could be worn in listed, certain yes areas and not in others. And I was like, these poor women are going to be forever taking these things on and off. <laughs> so um, I'm going to Dragon's Den with some Velcro nickels. Uh, or a little sort of visor. Richard, do you not, I mean, honestly, absolutely wherever you want, whenever you want. Well, I think you can't start dictating what people can and can't wear. But you I, you I, do, I, though, I already. Just, well, we all do. What? School uniforms, lots of jobs, can't work in B&Q, or indeed be uh, detained in Guantanamo Bay without an orange jumpsuit. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't for you know, people have a choice about whether they work in those places yes. and whether they go to the school. You know, I think, if anything, if we... We've got to sort our own house, get our own house in order first of all. You talk about the sun. Maybe we should get rid of page three and put some clothes on some of those women. Maybe we can make a compromise. Put some of the, some of the clothes from there. On, you know, so it's, it's kind of weird that you know you can sort of see it from from their point of view when you walk around in the UK and well, you, can, you know and you, and you see people walk around with very little on. But that, they've got the right to do that. So, you know, you can't just you can't prescribe, yeah, there's a certain amount you can wear, but... Well, yeah, but that, I think that's you've the You've got right to wear something, right? There'll be, there'll be rules. I think I can't... I mean, it's, everyone's bowing to UKIP at the moment, but there'll be, a, there'll be a slight sense of someone saying you can't wear it here. 23 hospitals have already banned it. I can't see that number diminishing, but, but the panel clearly... Well, unanimous, I think, in the view that, that, that there shouldn't be any... Is that fair? The only, the only no, since when we start counting opinions. Well, I both. I kind of. Well, I'd like them not to exist. Yes. Given mm, they yeah. do exist. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yes. you know, I, I wouldn't. You know, I'd like Speaking to live in a world where women didn't appear naked on page three and women didn't have to wear 
kind of strange veils over their faces if they didn't want to. Speaking so in some circumstances, I want them to wear strange things. <laughs> well, that, that, forgive me, that, that will be the end of the to debate be honest, when it actually becomes fetishised the and there becomes for, some quite hardcore veil the, porn. The problem for Islam is that, for me, I, mean, you know, I can imagine, if they've all got veils on, I can imagine what they look like and that turns me on <laughs> more. <laughs> so that means they're all that known, I find them all attractive. <laughs> the mystery. <laughs> the, the idea is always <laughs> better. In a man's head, the idea of a woman <laughs> you can't steady. see, you know that she's going you know to... Well, hang on, can we just go, let's make it completely fair. Why doesn't just everybody, men and women, mm. every Everybody wears the burqa. Yeah, there we are, pop God, my <laughs> 20s would have been very different. I <laughs> um, speaking of things that we wish didn't exist, did you see Tommy Robinson being refused service <laughs> in Selfridges? Uh, uh, Richard Herring, can you defend a shop assistant refusing to serve someone just because they're a bellend? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun and nice that they do, but no, you can't really. I mean, I think because otherwise you just become... The problem with all these things, you become the same as the person mm. if, you, if you don't allow the freedom for everyone to do it. So you become, if you get annoyed by the burqa, you become the same as extremist Muslims. If you get annoyed, if you refuse to serve, I mean, what's, are, you, are you hoping to sort of starve them to death? <laughs> if no one serves them. <laughs> Christian Dior jeans, slowly but surely. What, what British values are is that we're all, I think, is yeah. that we're all allowed to be whoever we want to be. And what I like about this country, I actually like the fact that someone like Tommy Robinson is allowed to say what he believes and I'm allowed to say what I believe. Uh, and that you're not stopped from from doing that, and and that we have to coexist with each other, and that hopefully by discussing it, uh, th that someone like him will realise he's a fucking idiot and yes. change his views, um, or maybe I will. Who knows? It's a, it's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful <laughs> time. Hold on, he has got a point. Place so your bets, ladies and gentlemen. Place your bets. Who's going to blink first? I think by giving anyone, you know, by giving anyone that kind of oxygen of publicity, it's the same with uh, Godfrey Bloom, mm. whatever his name is. You know, I think you. you uh, People will respect it. People, the people who like him, will respect uh, Robinson and think, "Oh, that's this is awful. Look what, how we're being treated. This is why we have to do what we're doing." Uh, and similarly, people will think, "You know, the, the, this uh, this uh, guy's been badly treated." You have a family history of retail, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I knew this was going to come up. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, well, you have to tell them now. Uh, <laughs> my dad ran a sex shop for a living. Did he, uh, did he ever refuse As far as I know, son? Tommy Robinson wasn't a, <laughs> did he, a regular. Did he have a fascist welcome policy? <laughs> <in his? laughs> Tommy Robinson, I only found this out today. He runs a tanning salon. Yes, I know. Does he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he makes people browner. <laughs> that is awesome. It's I, amazing. My irony that. alarm's just exploded. <laughs> I can... I think what we should do is send Abu Qatada down to his tanning salon and see what he does there. That's, uh, that's a very good idea. Why doesn't that? Well, that's a really good idea. And see if he'll refuse to serve. serve. He's got not a leg to stake. Like, I want a steak dinner after that. <laughs> I, I, you would not allow me to tan, and I want you to buy me a steak dinner. <laughs> steak I dinner. think it's important to, to remember though that the, the policy wasn't a Selfridges policy. It was an individual. Yeah. And I, I just can't be angry with that individual for making no, that decision. Um, you know, despite but they had to. They had to tell him off. Of course, and, and of course, and because. You know, as a policy, you have to, you can't mm. differentiate between. But I, you know, that 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 guy. What, what he should do, do is you serve them and you piss in whatever they've bought. Yeah, exactly. You spit. If it's a jumper, you just you know you nick, get a thread and just pull it, and then you know you know this is going to unravel. And that's the, the way you do it. He wasn't receiving a public service. You know, it's I, I qualified as a nurse, so you know I, I, when you're nursing, when you're medical, you have to act uh, um, work with people non-judgmentally. And I've nursed. Convicted paedophiles, I've done, you know, and things like that, and it's fucking difficult yeah, sometimes to, you know, when you know what somebody's done. But that—that's just how you have to work. But this wasn't—he wasn't receiving a public service. He was buying a shirt or whatever he was buying, and I just—I can't blame that individual for going. 
no, actually, I find what I, I can't. No, not so it, it brings away. to the fore that interesting thing. When you have that sort of job, you know, where you're just kind of a robot. Your job is to press some buttons and scan something, mm. but you're not allowed to actually have an opinion on things. You know what I mean? Like, the, the, that, that cashier made the mistake of being a human thinking. being. Thinking. With, thinking. Uh, thinking. Yes. When you're not... Well, Selfridges do not like thinkers. You know, you're, you're there to just scan, take that's, money. That's, you know, you know that, but you wouldn't have that I problem with self-service checkouts. That's what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm saying Selfridges need to introduce <laughs> self-service checkouts now. They'll eradicate that problem. Avoid state dinner fascist Islamic controversy by sticking everything. I once refused to serve a baroness when I worked in menswear. On the, I felt perfect reasonable grounds that the pyjama bottom she was returning because her son didn't like him had clearly been masturbated into. Her <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, husband was in the house of laws and I pulled them out of the bag and, and I just, I, I was young, I remembered. And I, and I, uh, and I said, I'm terribly sorry, madam. I, I, I'm fairly confident your son did like these pyjamas. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring Nick Revel back onto the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Revel. Um, actually, James, sorry, I should warn you, I'm not going to do the mono that, um, that, that I agreed in rehearsal. Um, there's some, been some breaking news coming, and um, I, I don't want to bring the mood down, but uh, especially on top of all the terrible stuff that's happening in Nairobi and, and, and Syria and so on. But this has just come in from, from Milan, uh, where, as you know, the fashion world is gathering. Um, uh, no, seriously, this is really... <laughs> I, sorry, I was going to take a breath here. Uh, it's officially been announced that it's now not fashionable this season uh, to use the handles of your handbag okay uh, that's that's official it, it, it's clutch bags now okay are in and bags with handles totally last season totally out um, apparently uh, details are sketchy it's a fluid situation but um, apparently the, the editor of Grazia was reduced to she had a, a bag with handles uh, and she Quick thinkingly, just is carrying it now as if it hasn't got handles, okay? But handles are totally out, all right? Uh, we have to take a deep breath and deal with this. We're British, we've been through this kind of stuff, and worse. Uh, uh, as I say, details are sketchy. As far as we know, the new clutch bag that is in is rectangular uh, and bigger than the traditional clutch bag, okay? About A4 sized, apparently, from what we're getting, seems to be the size. Uh, some experts apparently are saying that this new larger size clutch bag is, in fact, um, a, a retro feminist step, whatever the fuck that means. Um, uh, others are saying that, no, clutches are no longer just for evening. They can also be used during the day. Uh, as I say, everything's up in the air. We've just got to roll with this for the time being. Uh, one, th one thing is certain, though, uh, apparently, which is this. Uh, however this pans out in, in the long run, everybody seems to be agreeing that uh, this is a trend which totally spells the end of the heavy bag with multiple straps. They're out for good now, apparently. Uh, please don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reporting what's going on. Now, uh, uh, what I can say, a slight sort of grain of good news, is that if there is anybody in this room still using a bag with straps... Um, don't panic. We promise that in this theatre tonight, this theatre tonight is a non-judgmental zone and you will not be looked down on for having a bag with straps in this theatre this evening, OK? 
Next month's show could be tricky, just warning you. So that's the latest from Milan, and obviously we'll bring you any further developments as soon as we get them. Uh, there, there should be an emergency number up soon <laughs> for you to call, or better still have your people call it. Uh, and we'll, we'll pass that number on as soon as we get it. Uh, but obviously we'll only be recognising calls from the new iPhone 5S. So, uh, okay, I'm sorry to cast that shadow over the evening and enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. <laughs> the opening of the second half traditionally depends upon submissions from the audience. Thank you. I, I, I stared at this one for ages. I couldn't work out what it was. I thought it was an in-joke. I thought someone had come with their friend who works in IT and was expecting me to read out something that would be funny to two people in the room. <laughs> but, but then I thought about it. How would the panel suggest we differentiate between bank robbers and your standard nerdy guy from IT? <laughs> That's him. <laughs> I, get, I get it now. Still not great. Um, this one we will do later. I love this. Uh, this week, Roger Waters admitted that he had been wrong to fight his old bandmates over the rights to use the name Pink Floyd. What should other rock stars finally admit to having been wrong about? <laughs> Be here all day. Uh, the, the, would Ed Miliband make a good PM, or is he held back by having a shit voice? <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, Wayne. Would you please... Join me in inviting back to the stage. Uh, I, 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 well, I just love this guy, and, and you already know why. It's Steve Gribbin. We've had some very, very serious subjects uh, discussed tonight, uh, the veil and stuff, and uh, I would like to address a very, very serious subject because the world awaits with bated breath the outcome of the pregnancy of uh, Chan Chan, uh, the giant panda in Edinburgh Zoo. <laughs> Uh, who's about to give birth to, in the words of Nicholas Whitshaw, the most beautiful, magnificent, transcendent baby who's ever been born on earth. Yay, we aren't a worthy grovel, grovel. I am not worthy. <laughs> so, to be fair, Chan Chan's a bit pissed off. She, was, uh, she wanted a home birth. But I uh, don't know if you realise this, but wherever the, uh, the baby is born in the world, it belongs to China. That's actually true. It's Chinese property. I think we should send it back with Made in Scotland stamped on its arse. <laughs> Thing is, we don't hear enough love songs from male pandas, so I, believe I bring you the first ever song from the male panda's point of view. This is called The Panda in Love. And what better form of music to express this than some 1970s lover's rock? Here we go. I said, do you love me, girl? Just give me a sign. Since you pissed all over me and said that marks you out as mine. Making me so horny when you bite my ears Let's have sex within the next ten years For our wedding anniversary I'm gonna surprise you There you go baby, hope you like bamboo Yeah, 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 yeah I'm a panda in love Her name is Sweetness and I love her lots My name is Sunshine which confuses the Scots a Scottish name, the Zupica said. From now on, you'll be known as Wee Fairy Bastard instead. At 600 kilograms, you're a big yin. Mind you, for Scotland, you're a wee bit thin. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a 
tender in love Girl, you're not like all those other pandas out there I'm gonna say it out loud With your white fur Then some more black fur around your eyes Then some more white fur Some more black fur A bit more white fur Some more white fur You really stand out from the crowd Let's get down to it if I might be so bold After all, I'm way over nine years old It's just you and me, sugar, in our private den With 600 school children and 50 cameramen Gave her my best shut up line, I sexily winked Come on over here before we're fucking extinct Yeah, 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 I'm a pandering Yeah, 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 I'm a pandering Yeah, 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 I'm a pandering love Thank you! Um, we, will, we will dive straight into the deep end of international affairs, uh, and Syria obviously tops the agenda. I, I don't know how many of you were here when Dan Smith was last on the panel, but Dan treated, we were saying in the pub after he left, <laughs> it, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the wisdom and the insight which he provided on, on, on the issue of Syria was, was absolutely breathtaking, it was spectacular, but it was Fuck all you, Stan, because it's still kicking off over there, isn't it? Well, <laughs> I said military intervention shouldn't happen and missiles shouldn't be fired, and they haven't been fired, so... You're claiming you know. the credit. Yeah. Quite right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. The sun demands. Did the journey to inactivity follow the, the route you thought it would? I mean, well, I mean, in as much as policy was being made by cock-up and off-the-cuff, mm. essentially, no, uh, it didn't. Um, I, th- I mean, it's, it's a really extraordinary situation because when did you ever think that somebody would sort of quite seriously say the line you know Vladimir Putin rescued the West from its own hubris that's extraordinary it's just completely unpredictable when were you expecting to find the the policies of of Russia and Iran adding up to make an awful lot more sense than the positions that the West was taking I mean however critical you are actually about you know, Western international stance, you, say, you sort of feel, you know, somehow we're good guys, they're bad guys. Yes. And what's come out, I think, is, you know, we're klutzes and they're actually quite quick on their feet. There was an extraordinary moment when, as everybody knows, at the press conference in London, Kerry was asked a question by a reporter, is there anything Assad could do to prevent missile strikes? And he said, well, yeah, he could give up all the weapons, have a proper accounting system, every single one of them, but it's not going to happen and it's not possible anyway. And the Russians said, oh, we could do that. At the press conference after the not possible agreement had happened, Kerry was reminded that he had asked this question. And he said, well, yeah, in diplomacy, that's the kind of thing you have to say. You know, I was putting out a little bit of bait. I was, I was <laughs> tempting them in. I, you know, this, this was a manoeuvre. I mean, was it hell? When, when so immedi- he just let his mouth run away with him. And the Russians- yes, and immediately after that, the State Department spinners were out as fast as they could, saying this was just a rhetorical point. You know, it's not American policy. Don't worry about it, folks. And, and they, they had to move back from it. The thing is that the situation which has been arrived at will show that Kerry was not wrong. It's not possible anyway. It's going to be incredibly difficult to verify a negative. And, uh, I mean, Assad is sounding so nice now, and the Deputy Prime Minister is offering a a ceasefire and so on. And, you know, 
well, he hasn't changed. He's still the same. He's still the same Assad. So there's every possibility of something being held back. There is actually every possibility that a part of what Putin has been saying about the rebels having access to chemical weapons is true. So that you could get chemical weapon use happening in the future from one side or the other. Um, it's still not 100% proven, although, honestly, the logic does, the evidence and the logic does add up to say that it was Assad's forces who used chemical weapons on the 21st of August and, uh, and killed all those people in the northern suburbs of Damascus. But there isn't absolute proof. Um, so the situation is unresolved. The civil war will go on. We have anyway, as you commented before, um, we're talking about weapons that have killed maybe 1,500 to 2,000 people out of the 100,000 people who have been killed in that war. At the moment, the UN reports that 5,000 refugees are leaving per day. The total of refugees from Syria so far is 2 million. There's 1 million in Lebanon, which threatens to overwhelm and in any case extremely fragile political system where one of the major political players, Hezbollah, has taken sides in the Syrian civil war. So the situation remains actually as complex and as difficult as it was. But the good news is that thanks to this combination of off-the-cuff comment by Kerry and fast footwork by the Russians, this action of uh, you know, firing missiles into Syria by the West, which could not have done any good and would have done, I think, or at least had a high risk of doing a great deal of harm, that looks like it's not going to happen now. And as you say, you know, not, not in the way that was planned, but the We've end result is... Got to, an okay, got to a place that is a great deal less bad than it could have been. Is it true that when news reached Vladimir Putin that John Kerry had unwittingly left this wonderful opportunity for him to emerge as an international diplomat to give the lie to his portrayal as a homophobic despot who persecutes journalists and jails opposition leaders may suddenly be able to grant the moral, take the moral high ground? Is it true that the, the, his room in the Kremlin at the time, he had a long-haired white Persian cat on his lap that he was <laughs> stroking luxuriously as the information reached him. Ah. Yeah, so the, the Americans we, have done the right thing entirely by accident. Yes. Fantastic. That's, yeah, that's right. And, and in a way, you, ha you have to add that there's precedent for that because the UK government did the right thing entirely by accident as well. If you go into the detail of what the vote was in the House of Commons and the debate, basically both Labour and the doubters and dissidents on the conservative side were saying, yeah, well, you haven't presented the evidence uh, that shows that it was certainly Assad. You've got to wait for the UN. You need legitimacy for any such strike. And we're, a bit, we're uncertain as to what the end state will be, what comes out of this at the other end. Right? And Cameron stood up, and in a fit of annoyance, as far as anybody can tell, and yes. you might use, you know, you being a comedian would use stronger and no, much no, funnier they're, terms they're, to they're describe comedians, Well, they, they would. <laughs> um, in a fit of annoyance, he said the... the House of, the House has spoken, and the British people have spoken, and say they do not want missile strikes. I get that. Yes. But the thing that he should have got was, if I come back with more evidence and yes. better arguments yes. in a little while and some clever diplomacy, then I'll get my way. And it was petulance. Yeah. It was, it was, I, I'm glad you said that. I've often been thinking ever since that it was a man taking his ball home. He goes, right, fine, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then took his ball home. So we're never, ever going to play football again in this park, and it's all your fault, Ed Miliband. See how you like that. We're going to be a second-class power. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's exactly what it looked like. But again, by accident, yeah. we end up at the, uh, yeah. at the happy ending. It, it, uh, 
Richard well, Herring. J- James, not oh, the no, happy I, ending. No, I know. Sorry, obviously. It's a civil war. <laughs> um, the, the observation I found most compelling is that every, most people's reaction to Syria was actually what they ended up thinking about Iraq and not what they really thought about Syria at all. Does that, does that, so it was because Iraq was such a disaster, we mustn't go near Syria. We're not yeah. s- well, stopping. That, that's why the, the government voted against it, or yes. the, the politicians voted against it, because they, they don't want to make the same mistakes as everyone else, as we did before. But yeah, I mean, it's, it doesn't seem to really work going in and blowing things up, or just, you know, it works, but takes a very long time and kills hundreds of thousands of people, which isn't really a great way of dealing with There's Iraqi jihadists in Syria now. Right? Yeah. The, the, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Have, so, I mean, that, this is all a bit Monty Python, but I think that's the correct... It seems a shame. I think, like early on, when after 9/11, which obviously kicked all this off, uh, that you know, it seemed like America wasn't going to go nuts and start attacking everyone, and that you sort for a moment you thought this could be amazing. They could actually think, oh, let's take this as a warning. Let's spread peace around the world. Let's not be arseholes about it. Uh, and then you know, and we're not going to go and fight people. And then all these wars came up, and they're, not, they're nothing to do with uh, the original thing. And if, you know, if you're going to do it, if you're going to take, if you're going to take out. People, leaders, you don't, you know, people who are abusing their citizens, then you've got to do it absolutely everywhere, haven't you? Or what, nowhere. What happened to old school wars, like the Second World War? That was a proper war where we knew <laughs> who the good guys and who the bad guys were. We knew that we were on the good side. We knew the Nazis were bad. It was nice and nice, easy sort of, you know, morals there. Yes. And all these wars recently. You, you kind of look at it and go, oh, are we actually on the good side? Are we, are we on the bad? I, I don't even know. Are we, are we the bastards the or are we bombing the sides, bastards? I mean, or I don't even know. Um, You're yeah. right. The First World War fits into that category. It, that was a proper war as well, yeah. It, no, it wasn't, I don't think. Actually, it's oh. possibly a slight <laughs> But the First World War, if it was being reported today, would look a lot like sort of a, a Middle Eastern situation with it being very hard to identify. What the hell are we doing getting involved? What's it and got to do with us? It's not as simple as, as us against fascists or... It's not two contingents, it's um, hundreds of... of well, well for, for me, one thing that stands out is the whole thing about chemical weapons is, at the end of the day, we do not have an issue as a country with the use of chemical weapons because we've used them. Uh, we allowed Israel to use them in Gaza just a few years ago. Um, in Iraq, um, the Americans used them. So the idea that somehow there's this chemical... Oh, chemical weapons are awful. No, that's just confected because we're quite happy to turn a blind eye when it suits us and all of a sudden now we become um, suddenly, uh, you know, really, oh, we, no one can ever use chemical... It's bollocks. It's absolute bollocks. And it just shows just how convenient... Uh, these arguments are put together um, to try and come across... It's just a and political last night, indeed, it was, it was reported that a lot of the sarin in Syria was supplied from Germany up until about 2005. Export licenses um, granted from this country. When are we going to stop being surprised that people are using the weapons we sold them? I yes. can't... Well, I just... It, it seems so simple. When well, I'm going to bring it up again, because you've already brought it up once. My dad had a sex shop, right? Yeah. And it's relevant. Bear with me. Bear with me. My dad sold amyl nitrate in his sex shop. But in his sex shop, they sold amyl nitrate as room deodorizers. Right now, he knew damn well nobody was deodorizing a room with that stuff. Right, that's just not what you know. It was mainly young men bought that. They don't worry about what their rooms smell like. It was. <laughs> Hang on, you know, don't you flare all young men saying we don't? Uh, my room smells of links. Thank you very much. I'm very concerned. 
more tea, Vicar. So I can get you some amyl nitrate, it'll be fine. <laughs> That's the Bahraini issue, where the, I think a foreign office minister, probably the last government, who said, yes, we, we sold them electric cattle prods, but we had absolutely no reason to believe that they were going to be used for ca- crowd control. <laughs> <laughs> just cattle. <laughs> just, just cattle. It's, uh, yeah, and so I, I guess you're right, um, Rich. It's, it's the difficulty in identifying who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, which is a slightly shorthand way of, of what Dan said. The, but the, the older I get, the more I start thinking, actually, we are the bastards. The, more, the older I get, and the, the, I st- the more I start going, actually, no, uh, this whole time we have pretty much been the bastards, what, haven't we? What sort of... Were you still on the Daily Star? How do you think you'd have been handling the Syrian situation? <laughs> um, we'd have probably had a little... What would you have dressed up as? <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd probably have, have gone out dressed as a chemical weapon or something, you know, for the waddle down the street as a sort of... That would probably have been my, my approach to the uh, situation, uh, tastefully as ever. I, 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 I know this story. I've seen your stage show, One Rogue Reporter, and, and it's brilliant for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's over now, so I, if you well, see, if you haven't seen There's a documentary coming exactly. out, though, so yeah. Do so just, 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 just talk as briefly through, if you would, your, your departure from the Daily Star. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, it, was, it was probably about three years ago now. Um, the um, the Daily Star started quite openly throwing their weight behind the English Defence League, and although I'd been very unhappy for a while and sort of been planning to exit, it did certainly um, uh, sort of speed up my decision. That I was, and, and rather than just resign, I suppose it made me so pissed off that I decided that I was going to resign very publicly and uh, I wrote this resignation letter and I leaked it to The Guardian and that was pretty much the end of my journalistic career and, 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 and now here I am. So, you it, know. Was a brilliant, it was a quite brilliant letter and, and I know this is a satirical evening involving wry looks at the news but it, but it was probably the only truly principled thing I've seen a journalist do on Fleet Street in... in well, in, in thank you. That's very kind of you. But what I would say, and I always say to people, is most decent people wouldn't have got themselves in the situation where they were dressing up in burkas and working at the Daily Star <laughs> in the first place. So, uh, you know, you have to take that into account before you sort of uh, start sort of uh, putting... <laughs> You're putting me on too high halos. a pedestal. Before we start handing out halos. Yeah, um, exactly. Dra- drag events back closer to, to uh, Blighty and this rather good question that Wayne submitted during the interval. Um, would Ed Miliband make a good Prime Minister or is he held back by having a shit voice? <laughs> I, I, it, I mean, it's... it's, it's I, obviously, I, Wayne intends us to embark upon a detailed contemplation of style versus substance, but, but Dan Smith, the package is a problem, isn't it, for a politician? If you don't look like a leader... Yeah, but, I mean, I have, a, I have a sneaking regard for Ed Miliband, despite everything, uh, and even despite the fact that in something that I wrote about the Syria missile issue, I described a policy position that he was taking as being barking mad and cruel too. I nonetheless quite like him because, precisely because of that lack of style, because of the odd voice, because of the business with the eyes and occasionally the hair and so on. Um, <laughs> And what's, what's the business with the eyes? Uh, he, has, he has weird eyes. How are they weird? I'm not, I'm not going to go You know when that. they treat photos to yeah. make people look sort of weird in, on your iPhone? He looks like that already. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> That's the way. I feel a bit sorry for Ed Miliband now. If he's listening to this, he's going to go, not another oh complex eyes. for me. I didn't even realise it was one. The voice, the walk, the brother, the backstabbing, and now the eyes, the eyes. 
And now, now can I get to the word but? Yes, of course. <laughs> His butt. His butt. <laughs> one T for God's sake. One T. Just one. Yeah. I, I don't know. Actually, you've got a point of view on that. No, no, it's all right. I actually have quite a crush on Ed Miliband. Go, go, go. Now we're in crash territory. Top that. <laughs> The role role of the serious man on the... A burgeoning regard. Because I think that very often what he says, he he talks and he acts with a degree of calm, sometimes wisdom, occasionally real depth of analysis, thinking things through, trying to express them through properly. I think, to me, he sometimes seems to be let down by the team, Mm. which I think is an an issue to work through. Um, I feel that with, not with Brown, obviously, but with, with Cameron and with Blair, I feel as if maybe the smooth, well-spun, well-ironed politician has maybe had their day. And it might be, maybe I'm just being optimistic here, uh, but it might be time for something which feels a bit more authentic. Despite the fact I, I know well that, you know, Ed Miliband, like his brother, like Ed Balls, like a whole bunch of others, including Nick Clegg and David Cameron, have never actually held what most people call a proper job mm. in their entire lives. Their profession has been politics. But does that Ed matter? Miliband, no, well, I, I think with some people it does, but with Ed Miliband, I think something comes through and is shown in this sort of lack of a really smooth style. So he actually gets a tick from me for yeah. the lack of style. To, to be fair to David Cameron, he was head of communications at Carlton Television for a while after his mother-in-law phoned is up this, Michael This Green. is a proper job? What do you, thi- what do you think of Cameron's ass? Well, while we're talking about asses, can we go through all the leaders? Uh, who's got the best ass? Cameron, Clegg or Clegg. Miliband? Clegg. I think, I think Clegg's probably Clegg. got a you, best... You know he's Clegg. Type, Buns I mean, of yeah. steel. Buns of steel, Nick Clegg. Um, yeah. we're, we're, Richard Herring, can you, Ed Miliband, just your thoughts? Well, I, I saw him on uh, Andrew Marr, I think, this morning, and it's not so much his voice, I think. He just talks like a politician. He talks in that politician speak, and you just sort of think, and, he, and he's, every sentence is phrased, it has to be in a certain way, and you just sort of, it always happens in movies, doesn't it, that the guy who just comes on and goes, hey, I'm just a regular guy. <laughs> I hate politics, none of the above. They always get... I just sort of wonder if someone just genuinely, oh, fuck it, you know, this is what's going on and I'll just talk like a normal yeah, person. Is, yeah. Nigel Farage. But they still all talk in this, in this ridiculous... It's the manner rather than the voice. So I you think. can't imagine him sitting down in, in a room with his wife and talking like that? No, no, and I think if he just... You know, I wonder if a politician just went, look, this is why it is, the reason I'm doing this, is because yeah. we're trying, you know, but they, they're, they're so cautious about trying to appeal to the right people that I think they just all sort of like and avoiding little, offense and not yeah. accidentally so ending up being front page news for something that was a, yeah. a, a tiny part of what, what you said. But they, yeah, so they look ridiculous, right. so they, they, they look ridiculous that way. But that's so that, Farage. I, would, I mean, that's what Farage. I don't think it is. I, well, think, he, I, I think, think he talks to his wife like that when he goes home. Absolutely bloody certain of it. Well, I mean, the problem is most politicians are really weird, you yes. know, and you have to be kind of weird to want to be a politician and maybe they do all talk like this but you just sort of think you know just a bit of honesty and a bit of you know it doesn't matter what your voice sounds like John Major had a very stupid voice and, and he still became prime election, minister didn't he? True. I was at university with a lot of those guys who are now in cabinet and they would you know it's just a weird it's a weird thing to want to go into most mm. people would have been out drinking or trying to have sex with people you know to join the Oxford Union mm. and try 
and get to be elected into it. <laughs> Cameron a, didn't, though. Cameron gave all that a swerve. All the others were there. Yeah. Boris was there. But Cameron, I'm told, was right. indulging in more Well, he was doing other... Yeah, he was so doing Cameron other was stuff. more likely to get laid than Boris. So just so, briefly yes. back to the crush. On Ed, <laughs> on Ed Miliband, genuinely? A sort of, a, a little bit. Yeah, I don't I, know I, if it's the faint... Like, I'm a bit of a nasal speaker, too, so I've got a bit of empathy. OK. With the, and and I, I, I just want him to be the anti-Blair... That, and he's not, but I, I want be. him to be. Maybe I project that too much. Auntie Blair. <laughs> <laughs> that's, just, that's just a step too far even for Damien McBride. Um, and uh, we'll end, I think, on a completely different note. This is from Alan. It's very good. This week, Roger Waters admitted that he had been wrong to fight his old bandmates for the rights to use the name Pink Floyd. What should other rock stars finally admit to having been wrong about? Richard Herring. Well... <laughs> There's a lot of things to say, uh, but uh, I think it'd be interesting. I don't know if Operation Nutria just you know, <laughs> biding, their t- biding their time. I don't know if there's a lot to work through, but I think there's a lot of work work to be done yes. <laughs> in that. I think that Pete area. Townsend was wrong yeah. about the research he did for that book. That, yeah. book, that book's coming out soon. That actually, is coming. Out. I'm, I'm I thought I'd have just I, forgotten about that just, book. Just, I'm just going to pause briefly because this may have to be removed <laughs> for legal reasons. But I just have this image of Pete Townsend offering up research for a book as the reason why he had accessed child pornography and it being believed and then him having to go home from the police station <laughs> and start writing a fucking book. And <laughs> 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 uh, that, that, that book is now... Is, is now what am I going to write about now? <laughs> Jesus, what was I result? Once upon a time, there was a very naughty man... <laughs> Angela, Angela Barnes, if you could answer this question without reference to your father's career. Snakeskin trousers. That's good, generally yeah. generally speaking. Apart from Nicolas Cage, actually. Um, I thought you could say Nicolas Clegg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what an image. That, that bum, Clegg, Clegg in yeah, <laughs> trousers. That's, uh, he's got the arse to carry it off. Uh, as we previously established. That, that sadly is it. I mean, it's still... The night is young. You can be home in time for Antiques Rose Show. It's fantastic. Uh, the next show is on Sunday, the 27th of October. Our guests then will be Chris Neal, Kevin Day, Polly Toynbee and Alex Andreu. So as usual, a, a, a jog through some of the most right-leaning journalists and comedians <laughs> in the country at the moment. Music will be from Johnny and the Baptists. But please join me in thanking this week's guests, Angela Barnes, Richard Herring, Rich Pepiat and Dan Smith. <laughs> Steve Gribbin, of course, for the music. <laughs> Alistair Barry and Nick Revel for the architecture. And... I'm James O'Brien. This is no pressure to be funny. Thank you and good night.